ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Oh, hello, Norman. It has been a while since I've seen you. Who's this again? Sorry? Hello? <laughs> it's me, Tegan, your best friend, remember? Where have you been? Well, I've been, I've been hiking in New Zealand. Where have you been? Oh, well, I think we both had birthdays, haven't we? So you went off birthdaying in New Zealand. I went off birthdaying in Bali. Gosh, listen to us. It makes us sound like we're very international and exotic. Yeah, I got accosted in the airport by a CoronaCast listener demanding why we weren't on air. So okay, <laughs> who was this listener? Didn't introduce themselves. They just said, why aren't, why aren't you on air? And I got quite scared. And, you know, luckily my Bali belly wasn't active at that point. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, the listeners have spoken. We are back. It's Coronacast, a show all about the coronavirus, sometimes some other nasties as well. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turrbal Land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. It's Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. So, Norman, we're going to talk about, we're going to dig into a sort of one of the big things that's happening with coronavirus in Australia at the moment, which is the new subvariant Arcturus. But before we get to that, I want to do a new segment in which I throw you news from coronavirus land and you respond, and here's the challenge, succinctly. Do you think you can do it? I'm already feeling it because I can't pronounce succinctly. Okay, well, ready, steady, go. So the federal government's promised to provide an extra $50 million into funding towards research into long COVID. This was announced about a week ago thoughts? Well, this was a result of the long COVID report, which was a parliamentary inquiry. And the question is, how do we normalise the definitions of long COVID? How do we get it into GP records and more research into treatments so that we've got a better understanding of it? So it's not entirely clear what the 50 million will be spent on. It's a bit of a drop in the ocean, given we've probably got 40,000 people with it. An interesting report. um, And hopefully it's the end of the beginning in terms of our investigation of long COVID. And we'll probably deal with that in a bit more detail next week. Definitely in more detail in the coming week. Um, just to follow up, what would be an appropriate amount if you had the purse strings? Well, it's a question of knowing what to spend it on since they are not very sure what works at the moment. So really it's iterative research that really needs to be done. Very rapid turnover research where you would test something, see if it works, change over, which is change over the treatment, which is a style of research which was quite prevalent at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, particularly in the UK, where rather than a traditional randomised trial, you test something, if it doesn't work, you discard it, you try something else and you get a rapid turnover and therefore you get results very quickly. I mean, that's the sort of technique that you might want to try in long COVID, given we simply don't know what works at the moment. Okay, well, speaking of the pandemic, uh, in, an, in the States, in Japan and the W Health, the W Health, the World Health Organization are all sort of moving towards this idea that the pandemic phase of COVID-19 might be winding up. It's no longer necessarily a state of emergency. It's more to be sort of, it's a disease, it's still a, it's still a, a thing, but not in that kind of pandemic phase. Well, it's still a pandemic. It's coming in waves. Um, it's not there as a sort of steady state um, that you would expect from something that's endemic. So it keeps on coming. We'll come back to that later in the, in the podcast. And it's still hospitalising a lot of people and affecting a lot of people. So whilst we're trying to normalise here, we've, we've still got to be able to control it and uh, having adequate immunisation and so on. So there's only so long that you can keep these border controls up, but we've really got to do a lot to try and help people 
not get severe disease. And my last little sort of quickfire thing for you, there's a study that's come out showing that a, a school in California piloted using sniffer dogs to detect COVID in the students and staff, and it was actually pretty effective. Yep, this is a long, there's long-standing research into using dogs to sniff out disease. I remember years ago doing an interview in a UK, US hospital about dogs sniffing out people who were about to die, and it, and, it, and it sounds very macabre. And in fact, on wards, it used to be quite common that older nurses who'd been around a long time could actually smell people who were not who were seriously ill and right who were at risk of dying so so there are scents uh, that can be given off and can you do this in a mechanical way through a machine or through dogs and so this was the idea that you could sniff out covid-19 you know and it was it was reasonably accurate it wasn't uh, perfect but it was about as accurate as a rapid antigen test and i thought it That's sort right. of seemed a bit uh, labor intensive but then the authors pointed out that it's lower waste Maybe, depending on how much waste your dog generates. Well, that's right. It depends what the dog has eaten that day. But yeah, um, and then the kids can go and play with the dogs. Yeah, it's like a therapy dog as well as a sniffer dog. Don't worry that you've got COVID-19. They're their dog. Enough chit-chat, Norman. We've got to get into the meat of the episode. Let's talk about Arcturus. Well, that's kind of the nickname for the current subvariant that's circulating in Australia. It's one of the grandchildren or grandnephews, or I don't even know how to... to uh, portray the Omicron family tree at this stage, but it is a descendant of Omicron. It's one of these nicknames that have come from that group of virology people on Twitter who sort of suggested names from Greek mythology uh, instead of big, long um, strings of letters and numbers. What do we actually know about this current subvariant that seems to be circulating here? I think the sum total of knowledge about this variant is that it's more evasive, therefore more infectious, more likely to spread. So it evades the immunity from vaccines and previous natural infections and therefore... More evasive than previous versions of Omicron? Yeah, which is why new variants emerge, that they've evolved around our immune system and are able to cause new infections. Now, the question is, are they more severe infections? Are you more likely to be hospitalised? And the consensus is that this is no more severe than previous versions of Omicron, but it does give us another round of infections and it does give us another round of people who are liable to get long COVID and end up in hospital if they're under-immunised. So it, even if it's the same as previous ones, it's still not great news. So what are the numbers at the moment in Australia? Well, we've got another wave going on. Numbers, uh, as of last Friday, are going up around the country in each jurisdiction. And in some states, there are a lot of people in hospital. For example, in New South Wales, there's nearly 1,300 people in hospital. So not that everybody knows New South Wales hospitals, but if you take a very large hospital like Westmead or Royal Prince Alfred, they have about 960, thereabouts, 960 beds. In the whole hospital? In the whole hospital. So one and a half large teaching hospitals filled with people with COVID-19. Yeah, albeit they're spread around the place, but in a time when people have got coronary heart disease, they need their hips replaced and their knees replaced, all sorts of work needing done, cancer care we have got the equivalent of one and a half teaching hospitals in New South Wales filled with people with COVID-19 who are disproportionately under-immunised. In Victoria, it's about half of a teaching hospital. If you say that Royal Melbourne has about 630 beds, 320 people in Melbourne, in Victoria, are in hospital with COVID-19. Again, spread around, but that's a lot of people. Queensland 
a smaller state population-wise than Victoria, have got nearly 300 people in hospital. Um, and again, that's Royal Brisbane is about 989 beds, so it's about a third of the equivalent of Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. So these are a lot of people taking up a lot of space in hospitals where they've got to be cared for. You've got to try and prevent them infecting other people and infecting staff. Um, spread of infection. My understanding is that if you catch COVID in hospital, the mortality rate is twice that of people who come in from outside and go into intensive care. So if you go into, if you're hospitalized with COVID, um, I think the mortality rate is about 6%. If you catch it in hospital, it's nearly 12%. Is that because people who are in hospital are generally there because they're already compromised? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, and and so there's a big issue around hospital-acquired infections. So this is the, so the implications of all these people in hospital are enormous, notwithstanding the simple consumption of resources. Right, and like that's not to say that these people are using our resources like it's nothing. It's not about the people. It's about the fact that this virus is still spreading to the extent where we have this volume of people who need hospital care. Even though, as we were saying before, countries and World Health Organizations and that sort of thing are winding back the sort of pandemic measures, but it's by no means over, and it's still disproportionately affecting um, people. Yeah, and we're, we're disproportionately under-immunised. Um, there's still millions of Australians who haven't even had the third dose. And when you look at the data, I understand last time we looked at the data, the, the people who were in hospital, most people in hospital have had immunisation because most Australians have been immunised, but most of them are under-immunised. And uh, so this is an avoidable group of people and probably even more avoidable if we were paying attention to indoor air. And if you look at the uh, admissions to ICU, it's... You know, one or two ICUs in it's one ICU equivalent in Victoria, and probably two ICUs equivalent in uh, in New South Wales at a time when there's other work to be done in healthcare. But these people need to be in hospital. You're absolutely right, it's, but it's potentially avoidable. So the take homes here for Australia is that there is the people who are who are getting it who are ending up in hospital are under immunised. So there's there's work that we could be doing in terms of getting those people immunised. There's the indoor air quality that you've spoken about. We've talked on Coronacast a lot about ventilation and the importance of that. And presumably um, what you were saying as well about infection within hospitals, do hospitals need to be doing more to prevent infection in hospitals because of that risk you mentioned about the mortality being higher? Or is that sort of like they're doing the best they can, but if you're unlucky enough to catch it, then there's a high risk. Well, the question, the unanswered question is what are hospitals doing? So we talked about some countries trying to normalise and you know, change their border controls to COVID-19. What are hospitals doing? Are they still, if you've got that many people with COVID-19 in hospitals, are we still using N95 masks for hospital staff or are we reverting to surgical masks? I've been in a couple of hospitals recently and all I see is surgical masks. I don't see very many staff wearing N95 masks. So the question is, are hospitals doing all they can to prevent transmission within hospitals? Because it would be a serious safety and quality issue. My experience, because I live in New South Wales, is in New South Wales, but I don't know what's happening in other states. That's one of the questions. And coming back to the variants that are circulating, the Omicron variants, we're fine as long as it's the Omicron family. The question is, will there be a jump to a new pandemic virus? In other words, goes into an animal, changes genes in that animal, exchanges genes with another virus, comes out looking like a new virus to human beings, and there's another pandemic. And I mean, I think that whilst we're okay at the moment 
within the context of what we're seeing. A lot of people in hospital, a lot of people very sick, you know, 6 to 12% of them are dying when they come into hospital. Are we running the risk of another pandemic? And this could be like flu, although it's not a flu virus, is that every few years now, we might see another COVID-19, another COVID-type pandemic, as well as being vulnerable to flu pandemics. So there's more we can be doing on the health front where there's surveillance that we need to be doing uh, to see these next pandemics coming down the pike. Norman, it's almost like we still need a show about the coronavirus. Well, certainly if that lady uh, at the airport's got anything to go by, <laughs> yes. Well, in that case, we'll see you all next week. See you then. Attention, passengers. Hey, Coronacasters. It's Jonathan Green here. Uh, if you're hankering for some post-COVID travel, uh, but time and budgets are in short supply, well, perhaps my show, Return Ticket, can help. Uh, it's RN's travel show where no passports or money are required. We're all about journeys of the mind. So come fly with us over at Return Ticket on the ABC Listen app right now.